Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States. Today we have for you Greg Pardo, who is a former colleague, a friend, and a first-generation Mexican-American. Am I correct in saying that, Greg? I believe so, on one side of the family. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so if you don't mind, Greg, uh, Mr. Pardo, can you tell us a bit about your background? Well, thank you, Simone, and I'm so glad to be here on your podcast, and congratulations again on, on, on this initiative. I, I hope it continues to grow, and I think it's really important that you're telling these stories because, you know, America is a land, is a land built by immigrants, and, uh, you know, we need to continue to tell that story because that's what our foundation is all about. Uh, well, my, my name is Greg Pardo. I'm a, I'm a U.S. Foreign Service Officer or U.S. Diplomat with the U.S. Department of State here in Washington, D.C. right now. Uh, I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas, uh, born and raised in the west side of San Antonio, which is predominantly Mexican-American community. Uh, And uh, I'm a first-generation Mexican-American, I would say, on my mom's side and third-generation on my father's side. Uh, But my mother is originally from Monterrey, Mexico, uh, and that's where she was born and raised. She came to the United States when she was 25, 26. Uh, I, that's that's where I grew up. I, I went to St. Mary's University uh, in San Antonio, studied a BA in international relations and political science, uh, did some volunteer work overseas in Bangladesh, and then came back and got the Wrangell International Affairs uh, Fellowship, which paid for me to go to the University of Texas at Austin for my master's at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Um, I worked for then State, Sen- uh, State Representative Joaquin Castro. He's currently a congressman. Um, I also interned in Rangoon, Burma, but uh, I eventually joined the State Department and became an FSO. Uh, I've worked on Cuban affairs where you and I worked together. <laughs> yeah, exciting, uh, wasn't it? Oh, yes, exciting indeed. Learned a lot. Uh, worked in South Asia for five years and then came back to Washington where I continued to work on South Asian affairs and then worked a couple of years for, on Palestinian and Israeli affairs and currently working on migration uh, through the Migration Working Group. Uh, so, again, going back to where part of my roots come from um, on migration issues, and I see every day how, you know, that's impacting our country, but also how, why people move, and it reminds me a lot of my mom's side of the family and why they were moving for opportunities, and obviously I can, I'll, we'll probably go in deeper on that, on how she got here, because she got here because of her, her uncle, who came on the Bracero program from the 1950s, and so... Wow. Yeah. And so there's he he came on the Bracero program in the 1950s from Mexico when they needed more agricultural workers here in the United States. And, you know, it led to 
you know, my mother eventually migrating here because of that link. And so, uh, so really excited to, to talk about my story, just being the son of an immigrant and also the son of, you know, a, a U.S. citizen who was born and raised in a, and an immigrant who came here when she was in her mid-20s. Uh, I was able to, to see both sides of that coin and uh, see the, both the, the, how my mother as an immigrant took, avail, took advantage of the opportunities here, but also dealt with a lot of challenges herself. Uh, but I feel like those challenges, I seen her deal with that. It prepared me for a career in diplomacy, which is really interesting. So looking forward to, to talking more about that with you. Yes, very good, very good. Um, thanks for sharing. Can you give us a sense for, um, I'm not sure how much you went back to your mom's community or was in Mexico. I know I spent some time there and, and have a fond memory of my time in Mexico City and traveling throughout the country. Can you give us a sense for what the culture is like, what the food is like? music you know what what is like your world with your mom and dad, you know when you guys yeah. come as a family well you know growing up I spent um, almost every summer and every winter down with my grandparents in Monterrey because my mom would always make sure to take us down there for at least three weeks every summer my brother and I and um, you know it was completely different from the west side of San Antonio, right? We thought, you know, in the United States, we're viewed as Mexican. But then we go to Andre and my cousins view us as, you know, they would, quote, unquote, call us, quote, unquote, gringos or vienen los americanos in Spanish. Uh, here come the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, that was confusing as a kid. They're like, well, wait, we're Mexican, too. But we didn't realize that, you know, we're the Mexican diaspora. But uh, in Monterrey, I mean... You know, talking about Norteño food or Northern Mexican food, you have a lot of cabrito, which is baby goat, a lot of uh, obviously chorizo and, and uh, which is, you know, sausages, uh, a lot of meat-based items, but also a lot of, you know, our pinto beans, uh, cactus, which they call um, nopales. Uh, I've had nopales. Yeah. You've had nopales. They're really <laughs> good and menudo and and, and that was really good. And of course, we think fondly, both my brother and I, about the food my grandmother used to make. And, and uh, obviously, tortillas de maíz, which are corn tortillas. Amazing. You don't find anything like it in the United States. It's really rare if you can get some really good corn tortillas. But the music, it was a mix. It could be what they would call norteño music, which is, you know, a lot of uh, polka style music or ranchero music, mariachi music, but also a lot of the contemporary pop music where bands like Mana used to play really popular rock bands. And, um, you know, you had other, I think, um, some other contemporary singers are obviously the Vicente Fernandez that was always playing in our music. And so that was a good mix. That was what we experienced. And obviously the freedom we would experience in Monterrey because the neighborhoods were dense. So it was easy for us to just they would always send us on errands to run to the deposito, which is a the corner store, and buy stuff there, or buy go to the park and play with our cousins. We'll play soccer or baseball, and it was very different from the United States, where you know, yes, we lived in the neighborhood, but you don't see people on the streets walking as often as you do in Mexico, and and so we used to love going down there because there was a st special sense of freedom uh, <laughs> associated with going there, and uh, you know. My, our neighbors would always know that here come the Americanos, you know, my mom's name is Sylvia. 
the two little kids. Uh, so it was great. It was great to have that mix because that was something that, I mean, yeah, you can hear it in San Antonio within the immigrant communities there, but it, it was a different feeling. It's kind of like South Asians in New Jersey versus South Asians in India. It's very different, the experience. So um, it, it was a beautiful thing. And I just describing it right now is bringing back a lot of sounds and taste and smells uh, <laughs> from that time. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, thanks for sharing that, uh, mm -hmm. sharing a bit of your formative years in, in Monterrey, yeah. going back and forth and in San Antonio. I know you're, you're a proud San Antonian. Oh, yes. My, from what I know of you, I know we've had, um, you've traveled and our lives have taken on different path in the last few years, but I, that was mm -hmm. always something that I know you were very, you're so proud of being from San Antonio oh, and yes. your alma mater. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Definitely a proud San Antonio. And then I'm proud because obviously San Antonio has been a home for immigrants throughout the years, whether, you know, Mexican immigrants coming during the Mexican revolution or, you know, people currently coming in from Afghanistan after what happened this past uh, year. You have folks from India, you have folks from, from, from throughout Asia, from the Arab world and Africa. And, and you go there and you see how diverse it is and, and people have made this their home. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a new community. And that's why I'm so proud of that as well. Cause it offered my mother an opportunity to raise her kids and to, um, it afforded her kids new opportunities that she probably wouldn't have had. And Monterrey, and one son. I'm a diplomat now. Uh, my brother is uh, served in the U.S. Army and as a firefighter now after finishing college. And um, you know, very proud of that city because of the opportunities it provided. Um, it provided a home to to many people even now. So. Good. So I know you mentioned that your mom came over. Or are your is your mom's father came over on the Bracero program? Is there a deeper oh. story behind that and on how she, your family is in San Antonio? Well, you know, I, I've done research on my dad's side and, and obviously the Mexican American side, and he came in from Harlingen, Texas. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather found work after doing migrant work in Harlingen, Texas, found uh, work at the Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. So he ended up in the neighborhood with my grandmother and my father uh, and the rest of his siblings there in San Antonio, the west side. And I mentioned them because they lived four houses down from Emilio Flores, who was my, my mother's uncle, her, her paternal uncle. So my, my maternal uncle, uh, grandfather's brother. <laughs> So I, I, I'm still trying to do more research on him, on his past, but I think he had served in the Mexican military. And then after that, um, you know, looking for work. And in the 1950s, I think early 50s or mid 50s, the United States had a shortage of workers, agricultural workers. So they started this program called the Bracero program, where they would bring in uh, male uh, immigrants from Mexico to do a lot of the migrant, I mean, a lot of the agricultural work or construction work. And my great uncle... Um, took that opportunity. Uh, he came, he brought him to San Antonio and, and uh, obviously he married a, a local Mexican American woman and he set up shop. He, him and, and my great aunt uh, 
uh, Cristina, um, they bought a house, three houses down from my paternal grandpa's house. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he, he, he had his kids, obviously their kids uh, have, have had kids. <laughs> so a lot of my second and third cousins also found success. You have one who's a, who's an, a, an, you know, an officer in the Navy after going to college. You have others who are engineers after going to the University of Texas and, and stuff. And, uh, but that's how my great uncle came. And so my mother would come and visit her cousins in San Antonio uh, in the 70s. Uh, and um, that's how she met my, my father, because my father was a neighbor to this family. There was a wedding and they stood in the same wedding. You know, <laughs> he was, a, I think he was a groomsman and she was a bridesmaid. And that's oh. how they met. Oh, wow. How sweet. Yeah. That's how they met. Uh, and, but, you know, she, she had also come here on a work visa to work as a nanny in San Antonio for a family in the north side. And uh, obviously th there were some ties there for her. But then she meets this guy who she said initially she wasn't interested. But then <laughs> my father, I guess, was persistent. And they met. And, uh, but that's, that's how my mom eventually came here because of her uncle who had gotten an opportunity to migrate on this work visa. He married here, he established roots, had kids, and he happened to be, live three or four houses down from my, my, grand, my paternal grandparents' house. Wow. And so interesting to see how those connections happened. But it was because of my great uncle's decision many years ago to take advantage of this visa to look for better opportunities in the United States. And, you know, it, thinking about his side, his family, just to see some of my, my second cousins and third cousins to see how successful they are now. It's just like, you know, it was the decision, but almost 70 years ago by, by their grandfather to come over that they're successful, but also my mom had an opportunity to come. Yes. You know, and wow. Wow. That's, that's awesome that you're able to trace your family history back so far. And it's in San Antonio, right? That's yeah. amazing. And yes. I, I know from my limited in, uh, knowledge that I think for those of us who are new to the United States or live deeper in the United States and don't understand the relationship or rhythm of the border towns, it's quite frequent for people to get work visas and just come across and work and just go back and forth like every oh, day. It's true. I mean, I think Mexico is the biggest recipient of the H-2A and uh h2b visas which are agricultural and non-agricultural visas and and people don't realize that a lot of people come back and forth and sometimes if they meet somebody and they get married here obviously they end up laying root here and it's just the nature of the game so it's just kind of the same story that has happened for the past over 200 years you hear about people who came over from europe who are looking for opportunity or indian men coming in the start of the 20th century uh, from punjab to come to california and a lot of those families have set root and been there for years, hundred, almost a century now, right? Yes, right. And, but especially the border towns, though, you're, San Antonio, I mean, you go there, it's almost 65% Hispanic or Latinx, that new term folks are using. And a lot of it, people have been there for generations. We always joke that we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. We were here before <laughs> it was even right. the United States. Right. But then you have the other side, of, like my mom's side of the family, they came here from Monterrey because they were looking for opportunity and they, they took advantage of this work visa that was going on. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I, I think just my sense is from a lot of people from the general narrative in the press 
people might, not all Mexicans come here illegally. From my exposure, people have work visas. They come across legally. They work. They live on the other side and they just go back and forth. It's a regular way of life. But if you're not exposed to that everyday information, then Mm -hmm. I guess you go with what the press is giving you, right? Is feeding you. So um, that's an important point to make. And then the... The, the, a lot of people also were able to get their day after working through the Bracera program. There's, there's been a, a few iterations of that, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So then you're here. Mom's here. Was there a... I'm not quite sure what was your American dream or if your mom had a dream coming across hmm. and now marrying to your dad. And yeah. how did your family kind of settle and this this is this is our life and and what was that dream for you all you know um it's a good question and and it's something that i need i need to take time to sit down with my mother and ask her what was your american dream um but i think based on her actions what i did see is that i won't say when she stopped going to school when she's young she hates it when i tell it in public <laughs> and it was because of limited i mean financial limitations when she was younger uh her her younger siblings were able to go some finished teachers college others finished high school but she wasn't able to finish high school but i won't say when it's all right <laughs> she'll, it's all right. she'll come she'll come after me when she if she hears this she's like i can't believe you said that yeah <laughs> but that's fine. but um she really placed a huge emphasis on education and she and I think this came from my grand, my maternal grandfather and my maternal grandmother. They were really big on history. My great grandmother and 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 from Mexico, uh, she was involved in the Mexican Revolution. So that influenced my grandfather, who was really big on politics, um, always active, never at the high level, but always either helping at at uh, be, uh, serving as a volunteer at the at the polls on on voting on election day always monitoring the news and I, I always reading up on history. He, he obviously didn't get to finish high school because he was born around the time of the re- revolution. Uh, but he was self-taught. He read everything he could pick up. And I think that fell on my mom where she's like, you know what? I, I want you to know history, whether it's American history, Mexican history, or Texas history, doesn't matter. Learn it. Uh, she was really big on, on taking us to the Alamo. And of course she would always joke, Oh, those Texans took this. They robbed this from, from the Mexicans. <laughs> but, she, but she took us there, and she wanted us to know the history that was surrounding us. And, and you know, looking back to my mom's dedication to education, uh, she would always walk us to school. She didn't drive, so she would walk us to our elementary school. Um, when I would get in trouble or if I wasn't doing too well in my grade, she would go to the teacher, parent-teacher's conference. And if they didn't speak, if the teachers didn't speak uh, Spanish, because she didn't speak English, very limited English, in fact, um, she would she would ask for an interpreter because she wanted to make sure she knew her kids were doing well. And if they couldn't find an interpreter, I would have to interpret, <laughs> even if I was in third grade. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, there was a note I was supposed to give to you for signature, and I forgot to give it to you, mom. Or she's like, did you forget or did you just intentionally forget? But she, I think that was her American dream. Um, Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, she was a nanny early on. And she raised these two uh, uh, kids for this white family in the north side of of San Antonio. One of them became a doctor after going to the University of Texas and then going to the medical school in Dallas. The other one became a business person after going to TCU. And I think she saw, you know, if those kids can do it, 
my kids could do it too. And she was really big on that. And I think that instilled this um, desire in both my brother and I to aim for the stars. And I think that's what put something in my mind too, that, um, yeah, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something for, for myself, but for my community. Uh, all this history that I'm learning, I want to be a part of that history-making process. Yes. Uh, and I think that was her dream, really. It, wasn't, it, it was instilled in me, but that was her dream. Um, you know, she didn't care if it was raining, she was going to walk us to school. Uh, I still remember some of my classmates from elementary school making backhand comments like, oh, your mom walks you to school, you know, implying that, you know, she wasn't driving us to school. I would feel oh, a little embarrassed. Hey, really? But my mom, my mom would still go and she would drop us off. She was waiting for us there. Even when I got older and I was embarrassed, like, mom, I can walk myself home. <laughs> she was there, but I think it was... I want you to do well because I didn't have these opportunities, but you do in this country take advantage of them. And I think that was her American dream, uh, really, because she saw what was possible. And I'm sure she's so proud of you today and what you've accomplished, yeah? I think so. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be invited to give a speech at the San Antonio Education Partnership scholarship program luncheon that they have three years ago before the pandemic and the former mayor of San Antonio Henry Cisneros was there and he was married during the 80s and of course she knew of him because she would always see him on the news and, mm-hmm. and the fact that I was invited to speak and he was there and she sat next to to him and when I started telling the story to these potential donors about how the scholarship helped me I can see her crying because I was telling talking about <laughs> the story of her taking us to school and it's like now she was able to see that end product of all her her hard work and her dedication to making sure that my brother and I focused on our studies. Right. It's so interesting that walking your children to school can be can be viewed as a bad thing. It's so interesting. Yeah. Um, and in other parts of the world, I mean, it's, it's, it's a prize to be able to have the freedom and time to accompany your children to do that. Cause I, I'm a working mom and you know, Mm -hmm. that's what I desire the freedom to just be there to comb my daughter's hair, see her off to school, take her to school. That was amazing that you experienced that interesting twist there with your mom being able to take (laughs) you guys to school, right? The irony, right? Yeah. Let's laugh at this mother for walking her kids to school. But, you know, I think it's because I was living in this Mexican-American working class community where I think a lot of them, a generation prior, owning a car maybe or having two cars was almost like a luxury. And now this generation in the 80s, uh, they had one or two cars because of progress. Even if they're in the working class or maybe viewing themselves in, as part of the middle class, it's good. But I think now because maybe their parents were were ridiculed for not having the fancy cars. I think now they were in a position where I have a car. Ooh, let's look down upon the person who doesn't have one. Not realizing that that was probably the same ordeal that their parents had. And, you know, I, I think there is just um, whatever discrimination or racism those families dealt with in the past impacted them. And they didn't realize that they might be doing the same thing to a, a new generation of folks and uh, you know it's interesting to see that uh, and, and sometimes obviously it would 
it annoys me thinking about it. But other times I feel kind of empathy or or kind of a sense of sympathy for some of these folks because they probably were just dealing with the trauma that their parents dealt with, but didn't realize they were causing pain to others or making the same kind of backhanded comments. But Right, right. But it never phased my mom. She was always there. She was like, I'm going to take care of my, my two pollitos, her two little chicks. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, our neighborhood also, it's not bad. I, I love it. It's the Holy Family Church neighborhood, Loma Park area of San Antonio, but it could be rough at times. And she wanted to make sure her kids were safe and not getting into any trouble. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's funny. I mean, I, I, I want to be able to be there for my daughter that way. And so she had the blessing of being able to be present with you guys mm-hmm. through those formative years. It's just amazing how our society places um, the importance on and, and uh, interesting things, I guess, as, as um, yeah. we see our country becoming, in the developed world, emphasis is placed on some very interesting things about what is important <laughs> in life, right? Yeah. And yet, I think I would, I would say that I've had some sort of American success being here, and, that, and I yearn to have the freedom your mom had, right? Mm. It's like yeah. this whole women's movement of being able to be in the works place and achieve as well as men but then I love being a mother that's a part of expressing my womanhood and I yearn to just be available to my my daughter that way so Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting it's interesting it's an interesting experience Mm -hmm. could you speak to maybe some challenges and opportunities that came along Greg to help you you know, be where you are today. Obviously, you mentioned briefly the, the fellowship, right? Yes. Um, so you're growing up with mom and so forth. So how did life change for you and getting you off to college and then you got into the Department of State? Can you speak to that a bit? Sure. Uh, so I went to St. Mary's University in San Antonio, which was actually in my neighborhood. So I wasn't too far. It was like a eight-minute drive from my house. Um, I went to school there and I, I got a bunch of scholarships, including the San Antonio Education Partnership Scholarship um, to go to school there. And um, so that helped pay for that. I, it also helped opportun- open up opportunities such as study abroad in southern Mexico and Oaxaca and Veracruz, which where I had never been to. Very different from northern Mexico. Um, I was able to do study abroad in London for a semester and then did a summer study tour of India at one point. And it opened up so many doors uh, for me and um, for undergrad, that's just undergrad. And, and I think back to how I was able to go to these countries because I was a, the son of an immigrant who had to deal with two different worlds growing up, going down to Mexico and in the summers and adjusting there, but also, um, you know, translating for my mother in San Antonio. Um, but I, after... St. Mary's, I spent a couple of years in Bangladesh volunteer, doing volunteer work, doing development work. And then I came back and after that experience, I realized that I, I might want to try my, my luck in government work as a diplomat. And I applied for the Wrangell Fellowship, which I got. Uh, it's administered by Howard University. And, uh, and I was able to get it. I was one of 20. And I know you were part of a Pickering Pro- Fellowship, so you know how competitive it is. Yes, uh, I, I heard 600 applicants and one of and yes. one of 20 to actually get it. So it's amazing the and, for you too, right? Mm-hmm. And I was able to go to the University of Texas at Austin, the LBJ School, uh, 
that was amazing because I always wanted to go to UT Austin, as we call it. And so it opened up a lot of opportunities for me. Uh, obviously, now I'm in the Foreign Service um, because of the fellowship. It pays for your, for your master's and gets you into the U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, so that was great in terms of opportunities. Um, challenges, I think I would go back to, you know, we're coming from a working class family where, you know, you're not, you don't have a trust fund, right? <laughs> so it's a bit, it, it's, yes, I've been able to travel around the world, but, and I can help my parents travel around the world. But it was interesting that to see my transition into that career where now I have more income than I ever saw in my life. Um, and it opens up new financial uh, opportunities and capabilities. But sometimes you, you deal with that, you struggle with that transition because you're stuck between two worlds. And at times, I think I've spoken to a lot of other first-generation kids, college graduates, and first-generation Americans on one side. It's almost, it comes with a sense of guilt at mm. times. Uh, it's like, oh, wait a minute, should I be relishing in all this success? How can I help my parents out? Or should I be spending money on this new Afghan rug, or should I help my parents out? You know, that... And you see that maybe families, diplomats or colleagues who came from families from significant financial means, they don't, this is not a struggle they're dealing with because like, oh yeah, my, my parents are going to come visit me in, in Thailand where I'm working, they're going to fly business class. <laughs> you know, and for, for us, it's a little, it was a little different. Um, so it was interesting to see that, but I also, I, I continue, to, I, I feel like, that's just part of the process, those challenges, because we're, we're those trailblazers, just like my mother had to deal with the challenges of being in the country that's where she wasn't born and raised in, right? And having to deal with not speaking English. Yes, many people speak Spanish in San Antonio, but still not home for her where she was raised. And so if I, if I saw her go through those challenges and still, you know, succeed then I can also go through these challenges and still succeed. But maybe I can learn a bit, a thing or two from my mother's experience. You rely on community, rely on friends, mentors. Um, but yeah, you know, again, like we going, going back to that decision by that first immigrant to come here opened up so many opportunities that our ancestors wouldn't have imagined for them in their home countries. Um, so it, it comes with a mixed bag. Right. Can you speak to some of the cultural challenges being on one side, you have an immigrant family, but you're born here. I know you're alluding a bit to it and being part of an affluent and now affluent community, the Department of State Foreign Service, and maybe trying to balance that world. You mentioned that your mom, she doesn't have a PhD, for example, you know what I mean? Yeah. And how do you balance that? And and deal with some of the challenges within your own community with those two worlds? You know, I would start going back to even before college. Um, you know, my mom, obviously my dad is born and raised in the United States and he went to high school here. He did a year of college, wasn't able to finish, but he knows the ins and outs of being an American. Uh, speaks both Spanish and English. Um, I'm raised, I'm born and raised here and I... I'm more, you know, I'm just as American as any other kid. I, uh, I love American football, <laughs> love it more than soccer, even though my brother, he's the one who likes soccer more than I do. But it, I was a typical Texas kid, you know, football, right? Uh, American football. Um, 
And I know how to navigate that. But then there's also this other side of, so I'm familiar with it. I know how to navigate that Texas culture, uh, the things that people are interested in. But on my mom's side, you know, she was still an immigrant. She was someone who was born and raised in Mexico. Um, even though she had been here for a few years already, you know, she doesn't, she understands English, but she doesn't speak English fluently. And so you're still treated as an outsider. And I would see that um, mm. from my own Mexican-American community where uh, either relatives, distant relatives would make comments about like, oh yeah, all these Mexicans are coming to the United States and they're coming to San Antonio. Look at them, all these Mexicans. And I'm thinking to myself, my mom's from Mexico. <laughs> Even as an eight-year-old kid, I was thinking in my head. Well, how about nice. people making those comments? Your your family is from the same country. Like, exactly. You, you just yeah. totally forgot that your family's from Mexico, too. Exactly. You know, you have names. I mean, I'm not going to mention their real names, but it's like, I'll just use other names. Like, your name is Jose. You know, your name is uh, Carlos you probably speak more Spanish than you do English yet. You're making comments like that. Oh, well, those Mexicans, or, I mean, I hate to use this word. Um, there's this really derogatory term that people say is, it's called quote unquote mojado, which means quote unquote wetback. And that's why I'm coding it. Cause I, I know it's, you know, it's a derogatory name, name towards immigrants from Mexico, implying that it doesn't take into consideration if they came here, you know, with a visa or not, it's just, it's almost like paying them as lesser than, and I would hear those comments um, in high school. Oh, God. Um, a lot of friends who are Mexican immigrants, but they would keep it hush-hush, or their parents were Mexican immigrants, and they would keep it hush-hush. But I remember classmates would say, like, oh, my gosh, the neighbors are playing that Mexican music. Like, it's so bad. So then it would make me wonder. It's like, uh, should I say my mom is from Mexico because they're looking down on Mexican music? And it's so funny because these same classmates now listen to a bunch of Mexican music. <laughs> the irony. But, you know, it was interesting to see that even within the community. And um, I think I almost took the path of trying to deny that side of my family, deny mm -hmm. this fact that my mom's a, a Mexican immigrant, try to be as American as possible and listen to all the country music I can listen to. And, oh, man, you know, my name is Greg Pardo, not Greg or Gregorio Pardo, right? I was like, oh, man, San Antonio instead of San Antonio. But at one point, towards the end of my high school career, I saw a lot of friends coming forward, and this is around 2000 and 2001, just being proud of being who they are. And uh, I think this moment came. Uh, it started off, I, joined, I finally joined the soccer team uh, my senior year <laughs> because our football team went 0-10. We were bad. <laughs> and my was brother was a... Was, I'm sorry, was that the year when Emmanuel Acho was a part of the team? I'm just wondering. I'm just throwing No, no, much, that was my, much later. He's awesome. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, um, I was like, I'm going to join soccer. And my brother, who's a really good soccer player, he's a better athlete than I am. Uh, he was a freshman, and he made the soccer varsity team. I was like, hey, it would be great to be on the team. Of course, he's starting. I'm on the bench. I didn't care. We made it to the playoffs. <laughs> but most of our teammates were from Mexico, right, in El Salvador. And I served as their translator whenever they would get hurt. You know, when we were at the prep rallies, my coach and my, my teammates would say, hey, Greg, could you speak on our behalf because our English is not that great. And that's when I started taking a bit of pride in being who I am. It's like, hey, this is also who I am. Also, 
Texan, I'm American, I'm Mexican, I'm everything in one. And uh, we were at our ring ceremony in high school and my parents were there. We we're giving a few words to our parents of thanking them for all their help. And instead of speaking in English, I started speaking in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I spoke in Spanish in front of my high school class, in front of my high school class. And a lot of these students knew me since elementary school. And I was like, I was no longer ashamed of speaking Spanish because people would look down upon that. I was actually very proud. After that, I had so many other classmates who I didn't know had Mexican parents start speaking in Spanish. Oh, and they came out. It's like they a coming out party, right? Yeah, it was. It was like a I'm a an immigrant or I'm a the son or daughter of an immigrant coming out day in our school. <laughs> Join us next time for part two of this episode. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.